Okay, well, why don't we um, go ahead and get started? I'm going to ask them to close the door in a moment. So this is meant to be a, a very interactive session, and so I encourage you to interrupt me with questions. And also, I, I really enjoyed the discussion, so it was great to hear in the plenary um, everybody chipping in about how to get um, access for your patients. So please feel free to do that as well. And they're going to close the door for us now. Okay, so the way that I thought we would get started is I have a couple of cases. I always come prepared with slides, but, um, but I want to go ahead and stop me if you um, if you to, and then um, and then feel free to talk about other um, cases of yours as we um, as we move into um, discussions. Um, all righty, um, so let's see. Okay, my disclosures. All right, so by way of outline, and we, we don't necessarily have to talk about all of these, um, but, um, but may, or we may end up just getting stuck on HCV evaluation, who knows. Um, and, uh, but it's, it serves as a, at least um, a, a, a path forward for us. So talk about HCV evaluation, um, treatment of HCV gene type 1 naive and non-serotic, drug-drug interactions, which we kind of went over quite a bit in the other session, treatment of those who were treatment experienced in cirrhotic, treatment of uh, genotype 1 NS5A failures, and then a little bit of discussion about HCV genotype 3. So what I thought I would do is start here with the case. So this is a 55-year-old African-American gentleman who uh, has hep C. He was diagnosed on routine screening. He's never had a liver biopsy, and he's treatment naive. No known history about their liver disease. You obtain the following tests. So low hep C viral load, 4 million, genotype 1A. So this is a mono-infected person, by the way, hep C mono-infected. FIB4 score of 1.9 and APRI of 0.73, again, in the intermediate range. And so um, the first point that I want to make is about the importance of screening for hepatitis C. So this gentleman is 55 years old. So he falls in the birth, what we call the birth cohort, right? So how many of you in your settings have, uh, in your electronic, if you have an electronic medical record, electronic health record, how many of you have some type of clinical reminder for testing your hepatitis, for testing for hepatitis C? Okay, so a few, so that's good. Um, so th these, I, I think many people are trying to roll this out at various um, settings. The VA, where I spend about half of my time, um, has this as a clinical reminder. And it's important because patients um, who are in this birth cohort, born between 1945 to 65, as you can see on this slide, um, have a very high rate of hepatitis C antibody positivity. The prevalence is five times higher than other ages, and it represents, um, the, the patients in the birth cohort represent 73% of all patients with hep C-associated mortality. And I think most importantly, and the reason we do it based on um, Screen, based on the, the birth cohort, 1945 to 1965, is that 45% of patients don't recall an exposure or don't cite a typical risk factor. So this is really a reminder for me to remind you that birth cohort screening is really important. 
So how about what other, in what other situations do we test for hepatitis C? You guys can just throw out answers. HIV positivity, right? And so why do we do that? Co-infection rates, we talked about it. Prevalence rates are 30%. What about in injection drug using cohorts? What's their prevalence in some injection drug using cohorts? 100? You're not, you're not far off, 90%. Some injection drug using cohorts um, of HIV infected, um, of HIV infected individuals, 90% of them also have hepatitis C. Um, and uh, and what, other, what other settings would we screen for hepatitis C? So that's very so that's very good. So in your HIV positive, um, in your HIV positive MS. So yeah, so that's an interesting. So what what point what um, is what are you talking about the the recent sexual transmissions of hepatitis C in HIV positive MSMs? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So right now the um, the guidance is not necessarily that all MSMs need to be tested for hepatitis C, unless, of course, they have the other risk factors, birth cohort, injection drug use, receipt of blood products or clotting factors before 1992, they're about to be transplanted, HIV. But what you're referring to is something that I'm actually, I don't have slides for here, but is a really good point, which is that there have been clusters of acute hepatitis C transmission in HIV-positive MSMs. How many of you have, have seen that in your practice? I'm going to raise my hand. Yeah. And so, the, so are there risk factors for um, transmission? You guys can shout them out. Go. We're, we're all friends. Yeah, well, so what's interesting is that hepatitis C in both heterosexual partners and, um, and, and men who have sex with men is actually not that efficiently sexually transmitted at all in mono-infection. But in co-infection, we do see an increase in transmissions. And the exact mechanisms are not clear, but risk factors include those who... Um, those who are uh, who are having sex under the influence of club drugs, so specifically um, uh, methamphetamine, has been reported. Um, those who are um, using sex toys or doing fisting, so anything that can disrupt that very fragile anal mucosa, um, and um, and also uh, multiple partners again in the setting of um, in the setting of uh, drugs or um, sexual, you know, parties like orgies. So those are all risk factors. So in a standard HIV negative MSM, I wouldn't necessarily recommend hepatitis C testing, but in HIV positive MSMs, for sure, I would recommend hepatitis C testing. And in somebody who has um, risk factor, you know, somebody who has ongoing risk factors that I just mentioned, um, I would test them more frequently and in line with, you know, when they think they may have had an exposure. The other important thing to remember about, a yes. So there, so there are, so for the HIV positive MSMs, yeah. So there, um, so the guidance is evolving. 
But um, some would certainly say once a year in your HIV positive MSMs, but others recommend more frequently, at least every six months. And I do it at least every six months in my in, in my HIV positive MSMs. And also, if there is a re, you know, if they come back and they say, you know, I was at a um, I was at a party, there was a lot of sex, there were a lot of drugs, then I will also test. Or if I know that that is part of their lifestyle, then I will also test more frequently. And, and the other the other interesting thing though about that whole sexual transmission of hepatitis C, so we so it is not efficiently transmitted, right, in heterosexual and in home, in MSMs, HIV negative MSMs, but there have been a few case reports, one out of the Kaiser system, of hepatitis C sexual transmission, thought to be sexually transmitted, in an HIV prep program. So suggesting that there is some transmission. And if you listen to some of the folks who study acute hepatitis C, they suspect or they, they, their speculation is that as PrEP increases, as PrEP uptake increases, and as there is more, um, as there is more um, sexual activity amongst um, populations that have higher prevalences of hepatitis C, like HIV infected individuals, that we may start to see an increase in, um, in cases of hepatitis C sexual transmission. But that's just speculation thus far. Yes. Yes, excellent. So injection drug injection drug use is the most common risk factor, right? 65% of patients. But intranasal drug use is also a risk factor because of that thin membrane and the sharing of paraphernalia like the straws. And in fact, you know, whenever we think about um, asking, uh, whenever we do risk-taking um, histories in our patients with hepatitis C, when I when I am precepting our, our residents or our fellows, they often forget about intranasal cocaine use as a potential risk factor for hepatitis C. So excellent that you brought that up. Yeah, that is an ev that's an evolving that's an evolving um, field, I think. And so what are the pros and cons, right? So the pros, if you think about hep C treatment as prevention, right, the only way that we're going to eradicate hepatitis C is if we were to treat everybody, including injection drug use, right? And so by decreasing the pool of hepatitis C in injection drug users, we will ultimately impact the epidemic, right? That's, that's the, the pro side. The, the other side is that exactly what you talk about, which is this risk of reinfection. And it's true. You, there is a risk of reinfection. So unlike, so I know we've got a, a diversity of, of um, folks in this room. So unlike hepatitis B, right, when you have hep C antibody positivity, it doesn't mean that you're immune. And after you've been treated and cured of your hepatitis C infection, you can still be reinfected because antibody positivity d means nothing about um, seroprotection. It turns out, actually, that in the studies that have been done so far, that when you look at overall reinfection rates, although reinfection rates are indeed, um, they do occur in patients who are injection drug users, the higher reinfection rates, can anybody guess? In line to what we were just saying, 
HIV-positive MSMs, they actually have the highest reinfection rates. Yes, and I can actually attest to that because I, I will say anecdotally that I've had at least three patients in my practice who are HIV-positive MSMs who have been reinfected after... Um, uh, yes. Well, presumably sexually. I mean, they don't report injection drug use as a risk factor. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so in general, kind of uh, what we, so a couple of things that would tip you off to reinfection. So if they have a different genotype, right? So you don't get that lucky all the time, but sometimes you do. So in the one, in the one patient that I, one of the three of my um, uh, patients who uh, are HIV positive and MSMs and got reinfected, he had a different genotype. So that's, that seems to be pretty clear. So in general, if they fail after the SVR12 time point, right? So, so if, you, if you've gotten to SVR12 and you have an undetectable viral load, after that time point, if they have another, um, if they have hepsiviremia again, it's probably reinfection. I mean, the relapse rate from 12 to 24 weeks is almost is minimal, is almost zero. So if it's, after tw if it's after 12 weeks, it's probably reinfection. If it's before 12 weeks, that's harder. That could be relapse, right, from just DAAs, because some patients are harder to treat anyway. But I think that also depends on what the case is. So if you had a patient who you knew was adherent and they got their viral load to zero at week two and their end of treatment was negative, and then they report to you an exposure that could have resulted in hepatitis C, like I, I relapsed with injection drug use and, uh, and I had before, or I know I had unprotected sex, I'm, I'm an MSM and I had unprotected sex with somebody that I know who had hepatitis C, then I think that's less clear. Is it relapse or is it reinfection? The only way to really tell is not available to us in clinical practice, which is to do what we call phylogenetic analysis, which is to really genotype the virus. But you, you have to use <coughs> your best judgment. And in general, um, for reinfection, I would treat the virus that you have that, that has reemerged. There are cases where you can have mixed infections, right? So someone may have genotype one or genotype two, and so how do you treat those patients? So the answer is to optimize the regimen for the most difficult to treat, um, uh, and to optimize the regimen for all the genotypes that are present and the one that's the most difficult to treat. And what's nice is that um, with, with the approval of soft felpatosphere in June, that has really, I mean, it's a pan-genotypic regimen, and so it, it is effective against genotypes 2, 3, and 4, which are, which are the other uh, less common genotypes in the U.S. but still present. So that would be, that would be my choice. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the data behind that. Well, I, let me put it this way. I don't know that we have enough data behind that, but I would certainly anticipate that if somebody was cirrhotic, right? So if you had hepatitis C, were cirrhotic, got cured, then got reinfected, disease would probably progress faster in terms of 
potentially more worsening of liver disease in that patient compared to somebody who was non-serotic at, at the time of initial infection and cure. Uh, yes, here. Excellent question, excellent question. Also evolving field, right? So the issue with using our non-invasive markers, so what are our non-invasive markers? Let's start with that. So you guys, can you guys just shout them out because it's an experience. I'm sorry? Yes. So you've got a fiber sure, there's a fiber spec, those are the commercially available. Aprian Fib4, fiber scan. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a really good point. Around the mic for, uh, for the Thank you for reminding me. Yes. Why don't we do that? Why don't we pass around the mic? So can you just repeat that question in the mic? That was an excellent question. So um, the question was, um, you know, are we have patients who are F4, they're, they're cirrhotic, and the, but they're compensated, and we treat them. And after treatment, we recheck their fibrosis score, partly part of because of curiosity, and then they drop to like F2 or F3. And so the question is whether you should still send them to a hepatologist for a transplant linkage, even though it's, it'll probably take them decades. But what's the yeah. process? Yeah, no, excellent question. And so, th so the issue is that with all of our, with the majority of our non-invasive markers for estimating fibrosis, right? So before we had non-invasive markers, what did we do? Liver biopsies, right? But those, those were problematic for a variety of reasons. Expensive, invasive, you had to get three centimeters. It was very operator dependent. So we've now moved to non-invasive methods. But the one thing that liver biopsies did help us with was true staging of disease before and after treatment if you were doing it. Although that wasn't an indication, but in a lot of clinical trials that was being done. And so in lieu of liver biopsies, the non-invasive markers, they all measured aspects of inflammation, right? Like ALT, AST, and those are going to improve, often improve with hepatitis C treatment. And so, the, so that's a very good question. We don't know if you see an improvement in Fib4 or APRI or FibroSure or FibroSpect, what does it really mean? A lot of people are now doing transient elastography and are doing that before, a lot of people, I should say, the people in our center are doing transient elastography before and after treatment and are now proposing to do it at some interval after treatment with the idea of measuring liver fibrosis and liver fibrosis change. What I will say that for now, the current, current guidance is the way I think about it, once a cirrhotic, always a cirrhotic with regards to screening. So that means that even if their APRI and FIB4 scores, so if they started out cirrhotic, even if their APRI or FIB4 transient elastography improves, they still require Q6 month hepatocellular carcinoma screening with um, ultrasound and in some cases, alpha-protein, but alpha-protein ultrasound every six months. Um, and I think we're going to get more and more data over time about um, how useful certain markers are to assess for fibrosis regression. 
What we certainly hope is that, you know, if you look at the Hep B data, there was actually a, um, a, pa a paper that was published a couple of years ago now that looked at tenofovir treatment in patients with hepatitis B mono infection with uh, patients with liver fibrosis. And they, they actually did pre and post liver biopsies or treatment uh, pre, uh, a liver biopsy pre-treatment and then a um, liver biopsy after several years on treatment. And be, you, know, you can't discontinue Hep B treatment really, although in certain instances you can. But in these patients um, who had advanced fibrosis, liver histology actually improved. And so the hope is that we're going to see the same thing with hepatitis C, but we don't know yet for sure. There was, a, there was another question here. Yes. Oh, wait for the oh, microphone. Back to the um, patients, if they do get reinfected, um, will the insurance company pay for them to get retreated? Mine have <laughs> okay. so far, and I and I am in the somewhat enviable position. I think of I split my time between our private center and our and the VA, and at the VA, that's just not an issue anymore, thankfully for treatment. Um, but you know, you can only you can only ask. Yes, I saw another. Yes. Uh, what's the longest uh, follow-up past 12 week SVR that you're aware of in studies? At a, at least, not at least. I know three patients. that made me a little nervous. Uh, they would at the end of treatment, there would be um, the qualitative PCR will be positive and the quantitative is negative, and then I kept eye on them. Um, one of them is still pending final, but two of them after three months, they turned both negative and I used different lab. So with all this, mm, they, they use the um, all blood tests they use for definition of SVR. Are you aware of any um, sub-analysis that would use biopsy and histopathology? Are we changing the spectrum of disease with all this new treatment that's available? Yeah, I mean, I think so one important point to make is that, you know, so why do we use SVR12 instead of SVR24? If many of you remember in the interferon days, we used to use SVR24 six months after end of treatment as a criteria for cure. But what we now know is that the risk of relapse between 12 and 24 weeks is essentially zero. So if you have SVR12, you are likely to have very almost 100% likely to have an SVR24. And if you see a relapse in between that time period, SVR12 to SVR24, it is most likely reinfection as opposed to, um, as opposed to relapse. None of these patients, of these patients was a relapse. I passed it as a false positive for the qualitative okay. test because both are negative later on. Um, are we supposed to have that many false positives? Uh, that's why you had to rethink it. And so I'm sorry. T so tell me this again. So you have okay. three patients that you've treated with yes. what regimen? Mm, I believe they all went on Harvoni. Harvoni, yeah. yeah. Co-infected? Uh, none was co-infected. Okay, Hep C mono-infected. None of them was cirrhotic. None of them were actually, cirrhotic. Actually, I take that back. One of them was cirrhotic. Okay. Yeah, at the end of treatment tests, they, were, they had a negative... Uh, you know, during the treatment, I, I run the quantitative test. Okay. And that turned back not detected. Okay. End of treatment test, the qualitative, I normally run qualitative, and that came back positive. Mm -hmm. And when I did quant... And so end of treatment for all three were... Yes, these are three for similar cases. For yeah. quantitative, did you do the quantitative and the qualitative at the same time? 
No, I, according to the guidelines, I normally do end of three minutes. You just want to know if it's positive or negative. So right. I do qualitative. Correct. And that's when, when it comes back positive. After huh. the quantitative was negative, while well, uh, okay. week four on treatment. Okay. When I get the quality, qualitative positive end of treatment, um, knowing that the patient's done well all through, I run the quantitative, and that comes back negative. Then I kept running the tests monthly. Uh, because there are no guidelines to follow here. Mm -hmm. And they all turned back negative on both tests by three months. One of them is still pending, but two of them turned back negative, both quantitative and qualitative, at three months after okay. treatment. So you're saying that by, by one test, you had a qualitative positive at end of treatment. But at the end of, at, when you looked at SVR 12, both qualitative and quantitative were negative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that just may be the threshold of the test that you're using. And so I, I would say that the most important most important point is that they're both negative. So that's excellent. Yes. Or that both tests are negative. But until, until then, what, what do you tell the patient? I mean, it, it made the patient nervous. Uh, I wasn't sure. I mean, am I supposed to get that many false positives? Um, and one of them I used two different labs. Mm -hmm. uh, we use Valley and Quest and that sure. area and they um they get the same results sure they get sure, the same sure, results sure. yeah well i would do exactly what you did which is you test at end of treatment and then you test again at svr 12 and you let the patient know that there might be differences in the thresholds of the tests that you're assessing and that the true definition of cure is svr 12 and that's what we're all um that's what we're all evaluating Okay, so do you do you pass that as a false positive test, or was something else weird going on? Because mm, they should not be negative on treatment and back uh, I positive, yeah, and I, then negative. Yes. We didn't do anything different. If, the, if it was yeah. any virus, if anything, by 12 weeks, it should be higher. That's what I was expecting. Uh, yeah. If it was yeah, any I, yes. I, I mean, without knowing the exact cases and things, but yes, it sounds like that would be a false positive. Yes. The second one after I had the qualitative and quantitative. Yes, I I ordered the qualitative, and when, when that turned back positive, I ordered the quantitative because I want to see is there really so, any viral count so, there, and that's when the quantitative came back negative, and then said, okay, wait a minute here. Yeah, so it will depend on um, the different uh, different tests have different thresholds for assessment. And the qualitative tests are supposed to be a little bit more sensitive. Um, but in the case that you are, the case that you describe, the fact that they were positive and then negative, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I don't know how to interpret that. I haven't come across that. But my, my in the situation you describe, but I, I would have to say, I'd have to agree with you, those are probably false positives. Because you, you should be, if it was negative, if the qualitative was negative, before and then positive again, uh, that to me that doesn't make um, a lot of sense if that was not subsequently followed by a quantitative, you know, a true relapse where you have HCV viremia of 2,000, 5,000, and then up again to the millions. So would you keep eye on longer? Would I what? Keep eye on these patients longer. No, I, 
No, I mean, I would use the SBR12. I mean, I think the other thing that comes in, to comes in mind, again, and so the issue is if you have a positive test when you don't, whether it's a qualitative or a quantitative, when you think that you should be, when it should be negative, the thing to think about is reinfection and to then talk about, um, get a history from the patient and, and um, see if that's the case. But in general, I mean, I would do the end of treatment SV and then SVR12, and, um, and unless they have risk factors for reinfection, I don't, like we talked about the HIV-positive MSMs, I wouldn't necessarily um, continue to keep testing them. Can you clarify when you're recommending the qualitative test be used? So the, so the quali so the, it's interesting. I mean, the, the guidance actually um, doesn't differentiate as much <coughs> as it used to so in the protease inhibitor and PEG-RIBA days, there was a little bit more of a difference between the qualitative and the quantitative test. And now the guidance is that you should use a test, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, um, to assess um, hepatitis C viral loads. And so in my practice, I'll just tell you what I do in my practice, is that we use the quantitative, the, um, quantitative test throughout treatment and use that as the... Um, the marker for both end of treatment and SVR12 because it correlates very well with the qualitative results. <coughs> yes. Um, I think I was just going to try to talk about resistance a little bit because, sure. um, you know, we've had a couple of patients that we've treated, I, I would say a number of patients, both mono-infected and co-infected. And so I have three patients here um, who I've sort of, I think, I'm not kind of not sure about what to do. So the first one I have is a mono-infected patient who's 53 years old age, and he's <laughs> was a diabetic, had hepatitis C, very adherent to care. Um, we had given him Harvoni for about 12 weeks because he was over six million. Um, he was doing fine, and then three months or so after we were just following his labs, it came back and he had viremia of six million. Mm -hmm. We sent out resistance testing, and it looks like he is resistant to ledisprevir. So from um, our discussion earlier, I feel like I should probably wait and see for the newer second gen or the newer DAs, I guess, that are coming up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk about this patient. So hep C, mono-infected, right? Uh, cirrhotic or non-cirrhotic? Not a cirrhotic at the start. He was F3, and then when he got reinfected, it was F4. So, oh, but ultrasound was negative. For I mean, there was not not there was some nodularity, but they didn't call it cirrhosis. And did you do transient elastography, or how yeah. did you assess for cirrhosis? Uh, it was just an ultrasound, and then I was gonna either try to follow him through ultrasounds, really. Okay, so um, so 53 non-cirrhotic at the time of first infection, cirrhotic now at the time of uh, relapse, um, and so. Um, ethnicity? African-American. African-American. Okay, interesting. And then um, other, uh, and mono-infected, you said, right? Mono-infected, diabetic. And then proton pump inhibitors? No, yes, no? No, he did not. He did not use anything because he was very adherent to treatment. Okay, interesting. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of things, right? First, so this is not as much, so this, this your gentleman you're talking about was African-American and 12 weeks of therapy, right? So this is a slightly different scenario, but one that I really want to raise, and that's African-American ethnicity and cefosivir and lidiposphere with short course regimens, so eight weeks of therapy. So the guidance is that um, you can use eight weeks of therapy in hep C mono-infected patients, right? Not HIV hep C co-infected patients, right? That's clear. But hep C mono-infected patients, you can use eight weeks of therapy in patients with um, um, viral loads of less than six million, 
right? But there, are, uh, there is one important caveat, and that is in patients of African-American ethnicity. So there, has, there have been observational cohort studies that demonstrate that in African-Americans who've received, so actually one observational cohort study and one integrated analysis of the Sofosphere and Lytoposphere trials that have demonstrated that in African, the, a higher relapse rate in African-Americans who receive eight weeks of therapy. So this wasn't your patient. He had 12 weeks of therapy. But, um, e but the, the mechanism for this, um, this reduced SVR rate in African-Americans is really not well understood. And, I, and I'm not saying that that is what happened with your gentleman with 12 weeks, but when you look at... Um, um, when, we when they looked at this in the HIV and hep C co-infection data, because remember I said there that all the relapses were in African-Americans, they actually looked at lytoposphere concentrations and they were equivalent amongst patients who were African-American, non-African-American, SVR12, non-SVR12. And they also looked at um, efavirenz because some African-Americans um, may have altered levels of efavirenz, which can impact lytoposphere concentrations, can decrease lytoposphere concentrations. And they looked at that and there was no difference. So the... Um, so it's really not clear, but I do want to make the point that for eight weeks of therapy for sofosphere lytoposphere should probably not be used in African Americans. And my practice is to not do it. But that's not what you did. Right. You did 12 weeks, and you did the, I the exact correct thing. And so the other things, let me just, I think I've got a slide here about... Um, and the interesting thing was when we did the NS5A testing, he was resistant to lodisprevir and declatosphere, which he would never was exposed to, but it was also an NS5A inhibitor. Yeah, there's cross-resistance. So there's yeah. cross-resistance, yeah. too. The f uh, not at baseline. At, at retreatment, right. So, so these are so this is a slide that kind of goes over what we should think about in terms of treatment failures. So, was the initial therapy suboptimal? And so that's when I talk about perhaps the eight weeks in an African American, or maybe the patient was staged appropriately and they got eight weeks when they should have gotten twelve weeks because they were cirrhotic. So, you want to talk about. Um, uh, and also um, whether or not ribavirin was used in the original regimen, because sometimes um, that can be very helpful in terms of decreasing um, resistance. And then um, what specific medication classes were used, right? So we have NS5A and um, um, NS5B inhibitor combinations. We also have protease inhibitor and NS5A combinations. And before, we had... Um, NS5B and protease inhibitor combinations, NS5B inhibitor and protease inhibitor com combinations with sofosivir, semeprevir. So each one of those different regimen, just like in HIV, regimen combinations is, may put you at different risk of, um, of, res of subsequent resistance mutations. So that's important to note. Obviously, the stage of liver disease is also important because in patients who are um, certainly in treatment failures who, who are cirrhotic, you will be considering longer regimens. And it, that also impacts how quickly you want to retreat. So your patient is cirrhotic now. So I would say that he is at, at the highest priority, if you would, to retreat with this NS5, with, even with NS5A resistance. But if you had a non-cirrhotic, I would say that that patient could probably wait another year or two or three until we have FDA approval of some of the newer next generation NS5A inhibitors. And then were there other issues associated with um, uh, during, um, during the regimen? So was adherence an issue? You say no, um, but was adherence an issue? Were there significant drug interactions like proton pump inhibitors that we talked about? By the way, one thing that I didn't mention in the talk, so velpatosvir, 
and proton pump inhibitors. What do you guys think? Would you use it? The answer is no, yeah. So you know what's interesting is that when you look at the AUC, so lidiposphere and proton pump inhibitors, the AUC of lidiposphere goes down by about 6%. If you look at the AUC of velpatosphere when it's given with a proton pump inhibitor, the AUC is decreased by almost 30%. So that's another big, um, that's another big no-no, if you will, is the use of proton pump inhibitors with soft velpatosphere-containing regimens. But were there other drug interactions that may have decreased um, lidiposphere concentrations? Your patient is mono-infected, but the other interesting thing to note is that HIV-infected patients, for unknown reasons, actually have lower lidiposphere concentrations than hep C mono-infected patients. Mechanism is not known, but that does exist. But your patient is mono-infected. Um, and then were they immunosuppressed? Was there anything else that could have done this? So, um, so your patient is, you know, one of the 5 to 10% that does fail um, NS5A-containing therapy. They're cirrhotic. Are they child's A or child's B or C? Child's A. So what I would do is I, um, I, I would probably, so what I said in the plenary stands true here is I would wait. I would wait until you could, do you have access to clinical trials of some of the next generation? Okay. So clinical trials, and they're doing clinical trials of next-generation inhibitors, is, is, uh, next-generation NS5A inhibitors is what I would recommend. Certainly, refer, I mean, I, certainly also referral to maybe a high-volume hepatitis C center because they have a lot of experience with it. And so, um, but if you had to retreat this patient, so this patient has NS5A resistance, and did you test for NS3 resistance? He doesn't have Q80K. So um, what you could do in this case and what the guidance actually suggests is you could use semeprevir um, uh, and sofosavir and ribavirin for 24 weeks. And the reason that they recommend that is that there was um, data presented um, recently um, in a German cohort, actually, uh, of patients who had... Um, who were retreated with semeprevir and sofosavir for those who failed um, NS5A-containing regimens and, the over and who didn't have Q80K um, uh, resistance mutations, and the overall SVR rates were very high. So semeprevir <laughs> and sofosavir. But in your patient, he's cirrhotic, right? And so I'd be a little careful about semeprevir in, um, in, um, in somebody who's cirrhotic. And again, this is the issue with with protease inhibitors and increased risk of hepatotoxicity. The same holds true for semeprevir. So I'd be a little careful and I, I would do it, if I had to do it, I would do it with holding hands with the hepatologist so that they could, um, um, they could follow uh, him as well. And then the other, um, the other options um, to you, so just kind of going over, these are the ASLD guidance for baseline resistance um, testing and kind of the approach to retreatment. So if you, you um, test them and they, have, they do not have NS3 or NS5A resistance, then you could retreat with soft lidib and ribavirin for 24 weeks or soft VEL plus ribavirin for 24 weeks. That's an option. If you do your resistance testing and they have NS5A RAVs but not NS3 RAVs, and so the NS3 RAV that she was talking about is Q80K, so that is um, an NS3 resistance-associated variant mutation that is associated with decreased response to semeprevir. That was seen in trials using semeprevir and pegylated interferon ribavirin, and it was also seen in the, Cosmo, uh, in the um, semeprevir and sofosavir trials 
um, looking at response rates by Q80K versus not <coughs> Q80K. Um, so if you don't have NS3 resistance, which means that you can use semeprevir, then, then the recommendation is to use semeprevir, sofosavir, and ribavirin. If you did have both, um, but in your case, again, the issue is the protease inhibitor, right? Um, in, in a serotic, you want to do that carefully or, or wait. If you did have NS3 and NS5A RAVs, then what do you do? And you know, I have a couple of patients like this in my practice. My, my, even if they're cirrhotic, certainly if they're child's A, my goal is to wait and see, uh, and wait until the next generation agents are available or get them into a, into a clinical trial. If you have to use, if you must treat them, there is some data to help guide you, although it's with very small numbers. And so there was one that was presented um, that looked at soft Elbosphere, Rizoprevir, and Ribavirin. And there was a 100% SVR12 rate with that regimen, including in the nine patients who had NS3 and NS5A RAVs. That's nine patients, though. The soft Pro-D and Ribavirin regimen, it was, um, it was administered um, with or without Ribavirin for 12 or 24 weeks. Um, and in that, it was a very heterogeneous population, so I think that also makes it a little bit difficult to interpret the results. But that also had um, an, a high overall SVR rate, 14 out of 15. Um, for um, resulting in a 93% SVR12. But the one that I would probably pick in your patient and the, and the very similar to a patient that I have um, is probably soft bell and ribavirin for 24 weeks. Because, um, the, uh, because when you looked at, um, again, a study with small patients um, who, had, who were um, vulpatosphere failures retreated with soft bell and ribavirin for 24 weeks, in the genotype one patients, the overall SVR12 rate was 97%, and in all six of the six, N of six, but in all six who had baseline RAVs, they had, um, they had um, an SVR12. So that, that's, so I have a decompensated patient, actually. Um, well, I have, he hovers between a child's A and a child's B. And I really don't feel like I can wait with him. And so I'm, I'm going to be retreating him with soft bell and ribavirin. And, in, and interestingly, that my patient is a co-infected patient, but he was on a PPI. I, um, I have a, a, I have a yes. two quick questions. Um, I have a patient who is uh, co-infected, but co-infected with hep B and C. Oh, okay. And... Um, I want to know, first of all, you know, I, I started him off on his ARVs. At what point in time do I look at introducing the um, HCV regimen? I mean, is there a particular time to wait? Or am I doing, you know, medications, both regimens at the same time? Sure. That's, that's the, the first question. Okay, so I'll answer that one first. So um, I, one rule of thumb that I always have is to never start two different regimens at right. the same time. So you are right in, in trying to, to wait. I, there is no real guy in the, in the pegylated interferon ribavirin days, there was more of a concern about CD4 drops with interferon-based therapy. So we wanted to make sure we waited until their CD4 counts were above a certain amount before starting them on PEG therapy after starting them on ARV therapy. But the same is really not true. And there's, there's really not necessarily any guidance to guide us, if you will. But for somebody, what's his or his or her CD4 count? Uh, CD4 count was, I think it was 300. Okay. 
I may wait, you know, eight to 12 weeks, make sure they're tolerating their mm -hmm. HIV meds, make sure, you know, they're being adherent to their HIV meds, and then I, w then I would probably start treatment. And then the fibrosis stage, I'm sorry for the patient? Uh, two, I believe. Okay, yeah, two. Th then I'd probably give it eight to 12 weeks okay. and then, and then um, treat. In the clinical trials, um, when we, when we enroll patients who are co-infected, we usually say they have to have been on eight weeks of um, antiretroviral therapy, of stable antiretroviral therapy with undetectable viral loads before enrolling them. Well, my last question is, I'm at a community health center mm -hmm. with um, limited resources, and um, the patient that I'm thinking of, he's mono-infected. Mm -hmm. However, um, it just seems like to actually go and treat him, everyone is kind of like, uh, I don't know where to start, I don't feel comfortable, you know, because this patient, he, he, well, he's characteristic. He was imprisoned for, I want to say, five years, still has some at-risk behavior, bisexual, and it's like no one knows where to really start with him. So when you're looking at giving, like, doing the liver ultrasound and all this other stuff like that, all of that has to be approved through maybe a donated service by a couple of physicians. So we're not looking at getting rapid tests done and even just really extremely basic tests. You know, so I need some advice. On what's how the, to, what's to the access most resources? No, or? what's the most basic test that I can get away with when it comes down to you know, being able oh, to I treat see. this person. I see, I see. Um, well, what you really need to know are their genotype, right? Hep C genotype, because that's going to dictate treatment, right? The regimens mm -hmm. are different for one, two, three, four. So hep C genotype. You need a hep C viral load mm -hmm. because that's going to, you, mm -hmm. you need it in order to assess treatment response, but you may also be able to get away with eight weeks of cefosivir and lidibusvir. Okay. Um, you need to, at least if you, I mean, I, I would really encourage an ultrasound, a liver ultrasound, because um, although the sensitivity for cirrhosis, um, for assessing cirrhosis is not 100% with an ultrasound, it does give us some valuable information. And certainly if the patient was cirrhotic, if the patient had evidence um, or suspicion of hepatocellular carcinoma, that would also obviously change, you know, his, his treatment. So ultrasound, it's certainly also something that I would get. And um, in concomitant with that, I would get um, an ALT and an AST mm -hmm. and platelets because at least you can calculate the APRI and the FIB4 scores even if you can't send off or the commercial FibroSure or FibroSpect. Okay. And the APRI and the FIB4 scores, specifically the FIB4 score, you know, if you look at the cutoffs of 1.45 and 3.25, so 1.45 on the lower end and 3.25 have excellent predictive values for either no cirrhosis, less than 1.45, or advanced fibrosis slash cirrhosis greater than 3.25. So could, because getting a liver ultrasound, um, you know, that takes money and it takes mm -hmm. insurance and, you know, that's going to take some hoops to get through. Could I, could we get away with just the viral load and the, um, 
yeah, <laughs> the genotype. I'm just I trying to figure you. out, you. you know, money I, is... I don't know. I mean, I, I would say push and, and wait for it. I mean, I guess if you, if you, you know, if you had a patient with a FIP4 of less than 1.45, the likelihood is very low that they have cirrhosis. And so I'd probably feel very comfortable in not looking for HCC. Because the issue is that HCC changes the ball game. You know, it, it, um, they have to be referred um, to a transplant center, um, and then that will, de that will um, depend. Each transplant hepatologist has a different approach to treat pre- or post-transplant. So, so that's why I worry about the ultrasound in anybody with less than um, minimal disease. But I would see if your if your FIP4 is less than 1.45, if your platelets are you know 400, then it then it's it's probably fine. But I, I would I would push for the ultrasound. So back to the resistance cases. Um, <coughs> I have a patient who monoinfected genotype 1A cirrhosis, treated with Harvani and relapsed. Uh, got undetectable, relapsed by 12 weeks, has um, RAVs to Sofosbuvir as well as... Sofosbuvir, really? Yeah, and I know that's rare, but the he does S32? have... The yeah. S32, wow. And, that's uh, no um, and okay. to the NS5A, what do I offer him? Oh, boy, I would wait. And I don't really have... A, well, he has cirrhosis, so I feel like... I would still wait. I mean, I, I, I really... I don't know what I would do. So, I mean, the one thing about the S282T mutation, so that's a sofosavir mutation, mm -hmm. is that it, it carries a huge um, replication fitness cost. And so it is actually not a very fit virus, and it should disappear after mm -hmm. some time. They're not like NS5A RAVs that persist, at least the evidence that we have so far. It, they're not like NS5A RAVs that persist for, um, for years. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 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 you know, I might try in somebody like this. I might try. What NS5A rafts does it does the patient I, have? I wish I could remember, but he had one. Yeah. I just don't recall offhand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would wait. I'm, I'm trying to think about these three recent studies of the quad therapies and softfell ribavirin, and I'm trying to recall if any of them had S282T, and I, I don't think that they had, Nothing so it's hard that I could to find, extrapolate to that data. I, I would really, is he a decompensated? No, he's compensated. compensated? I, but I, yeah. I'm I, would, I would wait. I mean, you know, the thing about compensated liver disease, so if you remember in the PEG ribodies, <coughs> we used to, you know, compensated cirrhotics, we used to say, just wait, 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 we've got better therapy, wait three years, we've got better therapy. And it's important to remember, so, so five-year survival for compensated cirrhotics, 90 percent. Mm -hmm. It's the decompensated cirrhotics that we really worry about, right? Because their survival is like 50 percent, based on one nat uh, natural history study, is 50 percent after five years. So, um, so I, I think I would wait until we have, <coughs> until we have. Do you other see residents. anything in the horizon, though, for that kind <coughs> of for S282T? Um, so the. So there is, so this is also as part of the slide set. So there are, um, there were two presentations at, um, at EASL most recently. This is using one of the AbV regimens, um, looking at eight or 12 weeks in patients with genotype one or two. Um, and this was, um, and this resulted in overall very high SVR12 rates just for eight weeks. 
And um, the other one, although again, though it uses sofosivir, is there is a regimen using a protease inhibitor, GS9857, and sofosivir and vilpanosphere for 12 weeks. And there, um, with exposure, even in those patients with um, greater than two DAA classes, the overall um, sustained virologic response rates were um, high, especially in genotype 1, um, 100%. And so perhaps, you know, having other agents like a protease and an NS5A, which is right the backbone of, of other regimens, may be enough to, so, so that you don't have to worry as much about the S282T. But, but that is, I, I would still, I would probably wait for the new regimens. So, so near, uh, over here, yeah. So nearly all of our co-infected patients have been on antiretroviral therapy with an undetectable HIV viral load before starting hep C treatment. But there are occasional individuals that have high CD4 counts or elite controllers that, that request uh, hep C treatment in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. Have you come across that and what's your approach been? Oh, sure. I, um, I, we probably had a few patients who have not been on antiretroviral therapy. And so there's one regimen that you really shouldn't be using in, in that um, situation. Can anybody, anybody have any ideas? The PRO-D regimen in particular, because that would give them ritonavir as a single agent for, the, for their um, HIV. But, uh, but other than that, um, they, I, although that has not been studied in clinical trials, not, they don't, uh, most clinical trials um, have patients who are on antiretroviral therapy, although they have a, a small number of patients who are not, that shouldn't impact their overall um, SVR rate. What's more important um, in co-infection and in mono-infection is their fibrosis stage and prior HCV treatment experience. Um, okay, yes, here. Oh, could we have the microphone, somebody? So I was just wondering what your approach was uh, with patients that don't tolerate uh, therapy. Uh, for example, I have a patient on prod and ribavirin, and he's having extreme fatigue with ribavirin. Um, you know, close to debilitating. You know, do you how do you reset the body if you try and you know get another agent? His genotype one A. Did you did you reduce the ribavirin dose? So that's the plan. We're going to reduce the ribavirin dose and then see what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 would, I would reduce the ribavirin dose. I mean, that's, I, I think that is a good question that we don't have an answer for. I mean, do you need weight-based ribavirin with every patient? Because we know the toxicities with ribavirin are dose-dependent, right? Um, and so, the, uh, so, for example, if you look at the decompensated treatment data, they actually use, because of the risk of, um, uh, because of the overall comorbidities and also, um, uh, likelihood of having some degree of renal dysfunction, they use lower um, ribavirin doses. They start out at 600, and they have, for decompensated liver disease, have respectable SVR12 rates of 86%, 87% in decompensated disease. So I think the question is out there is what real ribavirin dose do you need? Does it need to be weight-based, or can you get away with lower? In the non-decompensated patients, there isn't a good answer. But what I would do is I would decrease um, the ribavirin. What did they start out at? So by half, um, 1,200? 
So at 1,200, I think I'd feel, so 600 is, is probably fine. Um, I might go to 800 first and then 600 and just see how they're, how they're tolerating it. And is there, are they anemic? Is that what's making no, them fatigued? No, they're not anemic. So I wonder, and do you know what the mechanism of fatigue is if they're not anemic oh, on their I mean, on it's usually, I mean, so ribavirin can be associated with um, some fatigue, but it's usually associated with the anemia. Right, that's what I was expecting yeah. to see anemia on the CBC, but even clinically he didn't look pale and he had like 14 with his hemoglobin. So yeah. yeah. Well, how many weeks of therapy is he on four now? Four weeks. Oh, he's only on four weeks. Yeah. yeah I mean, I decrease the ribavirin and, and see how he did. And if he doesn't tolerate it, then um, the other option is to, to absolutely not tolerate it. Then the other option is to stop um, and then wait and, and see how he does. Um, and then um, he's likely going to relapse. And then when he relapses, check his resistance. Um, so you would just stop the ribavirin pad and with well, so everything. no. So what I would do is I would dose reduce the ribavirin first and right. see how low you could get it. I mean, we do know that when you look at the viral kinetics of HCV response, the most rapid declines happen in the first weeks of therapy. So is he is he um, has he suppressed his virus already? So I just, said just saw him on Monday. So four weeks. Oh, so you don't know yet. Yeah. So. Um, so you might, and this is based on not really a lot of data, but if you have been able to get him to undetectable using the Pro-D plus ribavirin at four weeks, there's a possibility that even if you drop the ribavirin, he may remain undetectable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't do, th that's not the recommendation. I would try and keep him on as, as, low as much of a ribavirin dose as he will tolerate until the end of 12 weeks. But if you have to, then I would, I would probably stop the ribavirin and see how, uh, uh, stop the ribavirin. And if he's not tolerating or if, he's, if you've gone too far and he's just not willing to take it anymore, then of course <coughs> the other option is to stop all therapy. And then what I would do is wait for relapse, and then when he relapses, as he's likely going to, check his NS5A and NS3 resistance, and then you know make a case to the payor based on that about what retreatment regimens should be. You know, I have a question actually for you. So, are you is is the Pro D plus ribavirin yeah. regimen still kind of the preferential regimen for most of the payors? No, um, so I was actually surprised that he, um, you know, get, didn't get approved for something like, you know, Harvoni, um, right. but he had already was pre-approved before yeah. he came to me for treatment yeah. and he had his meds, so we just went ahead yeah, and used no. it. But other patients with, you know, genotype 1A, we've been able to get, you know, um, other regimens without ribavirin. Yeah I, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Um, that seems to be the case for us as well. We're really able to get soft, uh, I mean, uh, sophosphor lidipasphere um, easily. Okay, next. Um, yeah, I have a question over yes. here about. <laughs> we have a lot. I have a lot of people in my practice coming out of um, jail, okay. and they want testing. And I've had a high incident of undetectable, especially in, in uh, females, white females. And um, they ask me, should I get tested again? How soon should I get tested again? If with all the harm reduction efforts that go along with that. And since we're seeing so many more people getting tested, do we have any new data on how many people are really getting undetectable? Sure. And, okay, thank you. Oh, no, no, so I'm sorry. So I was a little distracted because I'm realizing that we are over time, right? Because we are, we're at 410. So is there, a, is there a limit to how long we can be in the room or can we just keep going, do you know? I, I um, thought this ran to uh, five. I mean, I thought 
We have the room until five. Yeah, I don't think there's okay. anything else. Okay, I'll scheduled. keep talking. All right. So, um, so your question. So, Hep C. So, why is it? So, your question, if I'm going to repeat it, if I'm going to repeat it, is um, that you have patients who are coming to you after being incarcerated, and they have Hep C antibody they're, seropositivity, they're but done. their viral loads are negative. Done. Right. They're running over, and Great. there's a lot of questions. They rep. What's that? Okay. Great. They, they are the lucky ones. So when one is exposed to hepatitis C, about 15 to 30% of patients will actually clear it themselves. And actually, if you have a patient who has acute hepatitis C and they have symptoms, like they are complaining of fatigue, right upper quadrant pain, they have um, sometimes sclerocturus or jaundice, those are the patients who are actually likely to clear on their own. And the other thing that's associated with clearance is IL-28B the, the IL-28B gene. So we don't test for it routinely, but just as kind of an academic fact, there are three different um, IL-28B types, CC, CT, and TT, and the, what I remember is that T is terrible. So if you have CT or TT, the like you have a much lower likelihood of um, clearing hepatitis C on your own, because that's actually, uh, we also see that in natural history studies, is that those people who have um, CT or TT genotypes are not going to clear. Um, and so it's likely that your patients had, were the lucky ones, and they cleared um, hepatitis C on their own, whether they had a responsive IL-28B genotype or not, excuse me. Um, but the, um, but for them, the, then the, the frequency of testing really depends on their risk factors. So again, if it's a person who's coming out uh, after being incarcerated and you are worried that they may relapse with injection drug use, then I would test them frequently. What is that, um, what is that number? Not well defined and again, based on what your, um, based on what their exposures are, but I would say every six months in those patients, if they have no risk factors, there's no reason to retest them. They were the lucky ones. They cleared virus, and there's no reason to think without exposure again they're going to relapse. Okay, sorry. This yes. Uh, for patients with chronic hepatitis C infection who have restated cirrhosis uh, or even decompensated cirrhosis, we definitely don't want to go for liver transplant with hepatitis C if they're going to get to that point. But until then, what's the uh, mm, What's the impact of curing hepatitis C on long-term survival and uh, risk for hepatocellular carcinoma in this group? Mm, there, there are going to be a lot of implications to the for the answer to this question. Sure. So I think you're answering two. You're bringing up two important points. One is is that hepatitis C cure, as defined by an SVR12, in both monoinfection and co-infection, is associated with reductions in all-cause mortality and liver-related mortality, including HCC. So this is why we're so excited about treating R hepatitis C. Right, and in b before reaching cirrhosis. But once you hit cirrhosis... Even in cirrhotic patients... Do we have a number? Yes. Uh, what's the... A risk, yeah, like in what's, for oh, this particular group. A, yeah. Because I, I tried to find out. I, I couldn't find the data for this particular group. In the, what's the exact number? Let me, let me pull my uh, papers and after the, the session, I will get that to you. But there is a, there is a decreased risk, even in cirrhotics. You're asking about the absolute risk reduction, what yeah. that is, what Because the is. this is something I might have to discuss with patients, especially when, like how heroic should we be if regimen fails and what <laughs> should we, 
should we decide to wait for new regimens that are not going to have ribavirin? And sure, great uh, yeah. question. Let me let me let me pull some of the data that I have on my on my laptop, and I'll tell you. And, and the other though, the other question that I do want to, the other point that I want to raise is this issue about transplant, right? Because every transplant hepatologist. So when do we refer to transplant? That's the question, right? So if they have a MELD score of 15 or greater, or if they have a child's Pew score of seven or greater, that's when we refer to transplant. The other cases that we would, and they're usually associated with um, a MELD of greater than 15, but certainly if they had hepatorenal syndrome, the, that gets um, certainly much more urgent. The um, median um, survival is actually very low with hepatorenal syndrome, um, but also HCC, if they meet Milan criteria. And so the Milan criteria are a solitary lesion of five centimeters or less, or no more than three lesions, all less than three centimeters, right? So, um, and so, but then the question is, and every transplant hepatologist, not every transplant hepatologist, but there is a difference in, in um, opinion uh, amongst transplant hepatologists. And one of the concerns about treating hepatitis C, especially in patients who are cirrhotic and are on the transplant list, is some hepatologists feel that that puts their patients in what they call meld purgatory, which means that they, so just like um, somebody here uh, mentioned, the, we know that the APRI and FIB4 scores get better. So indeed, patients' MELD scores do improve once you've been treated for hepatitis C, but that also means that you end up getting delisted for transplant. And so the question is, have you, for some hepatologists, the question is, have you really done them a favor by delisting them from the transplant, from transplant, when they still have significant comorbidity, you know, when when the cirrhosis and its associated complications still present significant comorbidities for the patient, and so that is a question that the answer to that will differ based on where you are, what access you have to transplant services, and what the transplant hepatologist um, will decide to do. Yeah, the answer to that is more like ethical and philosophical. Like, uh, but what, what would you do? I mean, their score went down because, in a way, they are better now. They have one less thing that is threatening there. Mm -hmm. So um, I wouldn't feel guilty for bringing their score list uh, for treating them because some other patient who is in more serious condition is going to get delivered first, and that's why we have the waiting list. So yeah, overall, but, but yeah, you did good. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is an, an, an evolving area, and I don't think there's one right answer. I think what a transplant hepatologist might say is that the five-year survival um, after hepatitis, let's, let's say the five-year survival even after HCC, um, transplanting after HCC, as long as it meets Milan criteria, is 61%. And so could you, what is that survival going to be in that patient without transplant is I think what the transplant hepatologist will. Yeah, will. but that patient, if, if he or she is gonna get worse down the road, is gonna get back high up on the transplant list. Yes, it's just. Uh, yeah, but there, that also may mean that maybe they won't get transplanted because, you know, whereas before they may have been uh, Close. Organ, correct. The, an organ may have been available later. They they won't. But you know, I agree. I mean, it's a it's a difficult situation. I think yeah. it's it, it it's an evolving field, and we'll see how, how it goes. Yes, take this question. I have another patient who um, I think she had genotype two, and she failed the Clinza Savaldi. She sort of like halfway through, for some reason, she never became undetectable at like six weeks or four weeks. And so she was seeing another provider. Now she's come to see me. 
I sent off like NS5A testing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, NS3 testing. And I'm not really sure what to interpret when it comes back because, you know, like we spoke before, like the Ladispira patient was resistant to Decladosphere. So with her, I'm sort of stuck as to what she might become or she might have cross-resistance too, but it might not show up on the test. So I just wonder how long they persist in a way. Yeah, I mean, there just isn't as much data with genotype 2 and resistance. But I mean, I guess just to go back to your patient, the same question. So she failed decladosphere, sofosphere. Well, halfway weeks. through, she never hit, like the other provider who was treating her was looking for an early virological response. So at four weeks, she didn't really drop uh-huh. completely. So let's say she started at like 6 million copies. She went to like 60,000. And so they discontinued it. They discontinued treatment. I see. And was, do you think adherence was an issue? No, she's very adherent. Um, she calls me every two weeks to find out what I'm going to do about her. And I said, well, let's just see what your resistance testing is going to show. And we'll go from there and we'll discuss it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say there just isn't as much data with genotype 2 resistance as there is with genotype 1 and 3. But in the case that you describe, I mean, the li- the likelihood is that you may be able to get away with sofosphere and velpatosphere because that's a pangenotypic regimen and it's a treatment experience patient. I mean, genotype 2 patients rarely fail, so I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that. Um, but in a treatment experience patient, I would probably do soft val and riba for 24 weeks in that patient. Right. And the other question I had was something that we discussed earlier in the plenary meeting with the patient who was mono-infected, had umbitosphere umbit resistance, and you had suggested to use... Um, I think Zapatier. Would you would you be okay with Epclusa? It doesn't really matter. Or um, do you yeah, remember? Let me just hang on. I have a nice slide here that goes over. Wow, I really didn't need all these slides. Your slides are very thorough, by the way. Oh, I thought I was like, oh, great. Sorry. Thank you. Um, okay, is this? So your so your question, um, I'm sorry. Tell me again. Was and so it was. It, the patient had umbitosphere resistance, and well, so now I let's. Uh huh. Was not enough of a drop. With, with the cleanse and sofosphere. Oh, this is your same genotype 2 patient? Right. That's the one you were asking me then? No, no, the one that you were oh, asking, anyway. the ambitosphere okay, resistance. So the, the, um, yeah, so the patient has ambitosphere resistance, and I was thinking, debating between Zapatia versus Epclusa. And I think you had suggested, um, I've, I think you had suggested yeah, use Epclusa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so what I meant, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the, um, the most data that we have, um, the most clinical trial data that we have is with um, the Grisoprevir Elbosphere regimen with, with NS5A RAVs. And so we know that if you, if you use Grisoprevir Elbosphere plus ribavirin for 16 weeks, that the overall sustained virologic <coughs> response rate is going to be very high. In the, in the six patients that had NS5A RAVs who were um, cirrhotic, it was 100%. So, um, so, um, so that's why I suggested um, 
Grisoprevir albosphere. But you raise a good point that sofosphere and vulpanosphere, if you looked at, so first of all, this nice checkerboard slide, which goes over the different fold change of the resistance mutations and the, um, and the NS5A inhibitors. And so if you, and so it's the same thing as we see in our, um, uh, looking at the DAA interactions. So red means don't proceed, green means okay, orange means with caution, although much more caution in this case, as opposed to drug-drug interactions. And if you look at, um, if you look at the regimens, um, so first of all, these are the, the ones here, as you can tell by the um, letters in front, are agents that are in development. And I think the most exciting thing is what we see here with drugs like MK8408 or the ABT530, um, um, where the overall um, impact of the genotype 1A resistance mutations is very small. So the, uh, another important point that I didn't make during the plenary is that for, um, for, uh, for whatever reason, Genotype 1A is more likely to develop resistance compared to 1B. The resistance mutations don't seem to impact um, the genotype 1B responses in the way that they do for genotype 1A. And so with, um, so if you look then at velpatosphere, and if you look at um, the different um, resistance mutations, so 28, 30, 31, 93 are considered the most important um, resistance mu mutations with Y93 being kind of the most problematic. And with the exception of Y93, Velpatosphere actually fares <laughs> fairly well. Elbosphere also, depending on what mutation you're looking at, um, has some better activity, at least if you look at M28T uh, or L31MM in particular is what the, um, if they're divided into two, it's um, the top one represents for L31M and the bottom one represents V. So they, they do have um, activity. And so I think soft vilpatosphere and ribavirin for 24 weeks would also be an option in that patient. It's just that we don't have extensive data yet to, to, to recommend that. And again, it depends on what the protoplasm is of the patient. So the reason that I didn't pick grisoprevir and elbosphere for my patient who failed, who had NS5A resistance, is because he was cirrhotic and, and had demonstrated to me in the past that he decompensated with alcohol use. And so I just didn't want to run the risk of uh, protease inhibitors, even though there's a little bit more data with that than with sophilpatosphere and ribavirin. I have a question. Yes. Is, is a... Is an AFP necessary? Is that, I mean, because I had this, this one physician say, oh, did you do that AFP? And I was like, I didn't think that that was always. Yeah, you're correct. The, I mean, the sensitivity of the alpha-feeder protein is, um, is, is less than we would like. And so actually the guidance is ultrasound every six months. There are people, um, myself included, that still use an alpha-feeder protein with an ultrasound, and it may help in the setting that if you start seeing a rising alpha-feeder protein over time, that may clue you off to something before you see something on ultrasound, because ultrasound is not as sensitive as CT or MRI, but the guidance suggests just ultrasound is adequate every six months. And at what point in time do you say enough of the, for the, the ultrasounds? If they, Forever and ever, forever. Uh, until we have more data. Again, once a cirrhotic, always a cirrhotic. So 
so with regards to screening, once a cirrhotic, always a cirrhotic. So until we have more data, they need every you know Q six month um, screening. That may change. You know, if we if we have cohort data in five years that that talks about. Um, uh, risks and that we can risk stratify based on something, whether it's transient elastography or other biomarkers, that may change. But for now, every six months, indefinitely. Yes? I had a patient who came back with a 30 to 93. Um, about treatment-naive patients, uh -huh. a patient come back with a 30 to 93 NS5A resistance. How does that impact what you do? So again, so cirrhotic or non-cirrhotic? Not cirrhotic. Non oh, you mentioned that already. So again, you have data with grisoprevir albosphere. And so the data, the NS5A RAVs included Y93 with grisoprevir albosphere. And it's, as long as you extended duration to 16 weeks and added ribavirin, then we anticipate that you will be able to have an, a sustained virological response. Another option might be sofosbuvir patosphere, but we just don't have enough data yet in clinical trials large clinical trials. All right. Well, we went well over. These were fantastic <laughs> questions. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs>